Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. As Rosh Hashanah approaches next week, some of us will head to the synagogue, some of us will head to the kitchen. To help us broaden our thinking about what to put on our tables, we welcomed a special guest. Here to introduce him is this week's guest host, Dana Steiner, Director of Access Global, the Young Professional Division of AJC. Dana, the mic is all yours. Thanks, Manya. I'm so excited to be guest hosting today's episode of People of the Pod with one of my favorite rising chefs, Jake Cohen. If you haven't had the chance to see his incredible Instagram and TikTok videos where the calibrating is on point, I suggest you get on there right now. But if this is your first time hearing about Jake, let's learn a little bit more. Jake Cohen is a bright new star in the food world, a former food staffer at Savor, then food editor of Tasting Table and Time Out New York, and most recently, the editorial and test kitchen director of social media juggernaut, The Feed Feed. When he isn't writing about food for publications, including Food 52, Food and Wine, and recipes on his Instagram and TikTok, at Jake Cohen, he lives in New York with his husband, Alex, and his most recent cookbook, Jew-ish, Reinvented Recipes from a Modern Mensch, can be found where all books are sold. So excited to be having this conversation today. It is my pleasure. Love chatting all things Jewish all the time. So let's get right into it. I know that you have been in the food, culinary, cooking world for a long time, but what inspired you to really sort of take the plunge into Jewish? I'm going to use the like dash Jewish cuisine, because as we know, there isn't one kind of Jewish cuisine. How did you really find yourself saying, this is the space I want to be in, and this is the way that I want to express myself, express my Jewish identity? I think that for me, it was something very easy to choose as soon as I started to kind of put the pieces together. That's so much of how I think about hospitality, about cooking for others, about entertaining, about family, about everything in my life is touched in either a small or a big way by Judaism. And I think it was really clear when my husband and I started hosting Shabbat, which is something that neither of us really celebrated growing up with our families. But when I really got exposed to what it meant to see Jewish ritual through the act of cooking, uh, through the act of cooking for family, friends, community, it's absolutely magical. And it's something that touched me in a way that I never really connected with before. And I think I loved media because I really got to explore the world and global cuisine, but when I started doing it through the Jewish lens, it became a lot more personal because in the same way of I'm learning about these dishes from across the world that I might have not experienced growing up, they're all typically in relation to the same Jewish rituals that we all celebrate as a community. So it might be a foreign ingredient, but it is in the application of celebrating Rosh Hashanah or Shabbat or Passover. And I think there's something super poetic about that. I think there's something super um, beautiful in terms of of really expanding our understanding of the Jewish community and how broad and diverse we are. And I could do that for the rest of my life and still just scratch the surface. It's so true. And I am at best an amateur cook, but 
I also so relate to the feeling of cooking and eating, which is such an important part of our tradition. It's so spiritual and it transcends so many things. Our world is very complicated. Our world is very messy and there's something really holy and there's something incredibly nourishing, not only in terms of what we eat, but in terms of the experience that we have when we cook and we eat and we celebrate. And I love that you talk about in the book, but also, you know, in your social media and and in other places about how it was really through your husband's family that you were able to seek out some of these kinds of flavors and experiences that maybe weren't part and parcel of your own Jewish experience growing up. So I know for myself a long time ago, I made majadra for Rosh Hashanah. And my parents were like, what is this? This is an unfamiliar dish to me. But to me, it's so embodied the flavor and the feeling and the warmth of Rosh Hashanah in a way that my family had never considered that we were utilizing this totally new dish. And for those who aren't familiar, majadra is an unbelievable, warm, cinnamony, rice, lentil, onion. It's crispy. It's nourishing. It's amazing. We'd never done that before. So tell me a little bit about what that journey was like when you started to dip your toes into different kinds of recipes and culinary experiences. It's as simple as meeting Jews that look different from you, that celebrate different from you. It started with my husband. And when you grow up in New York or even in America, we're fed from an early age a specific narrative about what Jews look like, what Jewish food tastes like. And it's very much so that like Seinfeld-esque Larry David picture, which is on one end incredible because we are still a small community and to have that kind of representation on babka and bagels and lox and all the appetizing and deli culture. Amazing. We need that. However, it can't be just that. And for me, when I met my husband, he had never had babka before. He had never had gefilte fish. He had never been to an Ashkenazi Seder. And likewise, I had never had kopa. I had never had tadig. I had never had any of the dishes that he grew up eating at these same celebrations. So I think that there is a generational shift in terms of our generation versus our parents and a willingness to explore. And I think you think of a traditional Jewish mother and how they respond to any type of change, whether big or small, it could be a lot. But I find excitement in our generation, my generation, the real passion for exploring what that means, exploring what that can mean, exploring how Jewish food is continuing to evolve as we start to branch away from our traditionally closed off communities and start to to blend into a larger, more unified Jewish front. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And especially for those who were really not able to travel during the pandemic, this experience of cooking and trying new foods was a way of sort of traveling to an extent that you were able to try new foods and new experiences and new cultures. I feel like I've heard from so many folks who were experimenting and trying and doing all of these exciting things because they didn't have anywhere else to be, which is a pretty cool thing. So pivoting a little bit, you have also really used your cooking and your ability to reach so many people through your platform, through your cookbook, not only in terms of inviting them into this really rich world of Jewish food and Jewish culinary experience, but it's also really been an interesting way for you to serve as an advocate. So what has that 
process looked like for you? Obviously, there is a lot of complexity in the narratives of food because they are so deeply tied to our memory and to our families and to our identities. And sometimes that can be complicated in terms of who owns what. But you've really been able to utilize these stories in a way that has really spoken on behalf and with and for the Jewish community. So how have you used cooking? How have you used food as a form of advocacy in some ways? Yeah, I do like your choice of advocacy. That's a really great, because I never would consider myself an activist, which I think a lot of times anyone who speaks with positivity towards the Jews is all of a sudden an activist because it's that revolutionary to be positive about Jewish culture and people. But yes, I would say that I love to share these stories because they are so complex and rich and colorful. And as a people, we love simplicity. You think about like you learn about a dish from another place in the world and a website or a magazine is going to say, here's your ultimate recipe for X. And to me, that's borderline offensive, but just at its real baseline, it's just wrong because authenticity can really span as far as one family when it comes to these stories of how Jewish cuisine has traveled. I think of my husband's family who his grandparents were born and raised in Iraq and then went to Iran and Israel and back and forth into America. So a lot of the Iranian dishes are made with Iraqi influence. A lot of the Iraqi dishes are made with Persian influence that all changed when it came to America and they added the American influence. It's no different from the story about a Jewish braised brisket and how there's no one recipe for that. You see Jews in the Midwest and the South throwing in Coca-Cola or ketchup or Heinz chili sauce, all these things, the way that people make matzo ball soup. and Or in my family. We use a lot of wine in the brisket. A lot of wine. My big thing is tomato. You need to have oh, tomato in your braised always. brisket. Many families don't use any tomato in their braised brisket. They're pure. And that's just that's <laughs> just it. That is the beauty of this. And there is no one route. There is no one way to do anything. I've never been someone who's saying that Jews own these things, but it's also incredibly hurtful and just inaccurate to pretend that like, Jews weren't in all of these regions of the world and cooking these dishes and using them to celebrate Jewish ritual. And we see that today as they have brought that all to America, as they've had to flee persecution. So to me, I think these narratives are all super special, super nuanced, and super specific to a family. So right now in this current moment, I'm looking to share these stories from my family, from the Ashkenazi side that was all over Germany and Belgium and came to, for a big chunk of my family, settled in Havana before the revolution, right after the war, before they came to New York. The other part came straight to New York. And, and I, I just think as a whole, you hear these stories and you hear how these recipes have traveled and that we as a community continue to celebrate these rituals and build and grow a family with these values. It's miraculous. It really is. And I'm thinking a lot about what you said in terms of how all of these different places that our families come from and how the recipes iterate over time. My great grandmother was raised in Memphis, so she grew up on grits, which you don't necessarily think of as an obvious choice in the canon of Jewish foods. But that's for so many Jews who didn't immigrate through Ellis Island. They came through Galveston, Texas, because that was the other port of entry. 
there is such a unique experience, you know, for Southern Jews and of course, for those who really come from all over the world. So it's so interesting to hear your own personal connection to that and the way in which you, of course, make your brisket. So you mentioned how there can be challenges in terms of how people may perceive, you know, and how it can be offensive when someone says like, oh, well, this isn't a Jewish dish or this isn't an experience that, you know, translates to to what we were used to. And we can often see that manifest in anti-Semitism online and also in person, which is equally as difficult. Have you experienced any sort of anti-Semitism in your profession when you present these beautiful family heirlooms to the world? What has that looked like for you? Or has it really just not been a part of your culinary journey? I mean, I think anti-Semitism is part of everyone's journey, no matter what they do. Yeah, I think it, especially as someone who now focuses on using social media as a real way to share Jewish culture and recipes, like it happens a lot. It happens a lot where people see something and they're like, no, this is this. A lot of it is just rooted in ignorance of seeing me post a video of my Persian mother-in-law flipping out a thing of tadik and someone saying, no, this is Palestinian makluba, which is makluba is an incredible dish from the Levant that like, it's just not this. This is like two different rice dishes. And it's the same thing of sometimes like you think of all of these recipes. And I think it's particularly charged in the Middle East. But oftentimes it's rooted in trying to use current drawn borders when these were full empires of dishes with origins that span the entire Levant that I I just think it's comical sometimes how there was one coverage in a very prominent food magazine of a recipe in my book. They were trying to, I think, cover their own base because it was a version of tabbouleh. And they were like, well, this is very non-traditional compared to Lebanese tabbouleh, a a dish from Lebanon. And and it's like, yes, Lebanon is, is known for their tabbouleh. Lebanon doesn't own tabbouleh. Tabbouleh is all over this region. But I think the issue is this is oversimplification without actual work put in to educate what is the history. And I love that in relation to Jewish food. I could spend my whole life studying the food ways of ingredients and dishes. And again, not get anywhere. But something that I've loved is things like the Persian Empire that span most of the Middle East and went all the way to India. So you have things like jalebi, the really incredible Indian funnel cake soaked in saffron syrup. We don't know actually where that dish originated because it's jalebi in India, it's zulbia in Iran. There's another dish for it in Iraq and they all are slightly different, but at its core, they're all related. They're all sister recipes. And to me, it's not about necessarily, I think we're past the point of probably figuring out the who, when, where, why, and how of the exact point of origin, but more so just the beauty of how we're all so interconnected. And some people don't care and just want to beat the drum as loud as they can and say, you stole this. And I don't have any time or patience or energy towards that. What I do have is a huge amount of excitement for the people who comment that they're seeing their grandparents' dishes, dishes that they have in their home for the first time on these platforms, promoted in a way in which it has not been in the past. Because something like kubba, really, really incredible dish, tons of variations throughout the Middle East. Iraqi Jews have one particular variety of semolina dumplings stuffed with meat and stewed in a sweet and sour beet broth. Really delicious. 
the only magazine I have ever seen cover it did such a bastardized version to oversimplify it. They, they covered the entire dumpling shell. So it was just meatballs and the broth. It, it was so clear that someone wanted to do this recipe and an editor said, this is too difficult for the American home cook. Here's how we're going to change it. And it is so much parallel to every cuisine that's not necessarily like the European standard where there's this facade that these ingredients are hard to come by. These techniques are too difficult for people to do when neither is the case. Does it mean that sometimes it's a little more difficult and not as easy as just going to your local grocery store? Yeah, it's a little more work, but that's what you need to do if you really want to be exploring a world of food and flavor and culture. Definitely. You know, I'm really inspired by everything that you said. You're really such a culinary anthropologist. It's such a wonderful, exciting way to hear you talk about food and to talk about feeling seen. I think for so many Jews, it's often difficult to feel seen as a whole. I think that collectively many American Jews feel in a moment that it's hard to feel like they can be outwardly Jewish in a way which doesn't put them in a position of vulnerability. And I think that especially for Jews, Sephardic Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Jews of color, to be able to see themselves represented in your food or to see themselves represented in the cultural landscape is so essential. And naturally, there are so many restaurants, pop-ups, cookbooks that are coming out which celebrate this richness of Jewish food and Jewish culture and Jewish identity. And yet there's also still so much more that can be done in order for us to really feel that sense of seenness and celebration. And you are such an integral part of that process for so many people. So my last few questions obviously concern food itself. So just a bit of rapid fire here. What is the thing that you like to cook, which brings you the most sense of comfort? Matzo ball soup. Naturally. Easy. What is your favorite sweet? Ooh, that's a good one. I would say chocolate chip cookies. And I have a variation in my book in which I flip them over and glaze them like a black and white cookie, which is very good. What is your favorite breakfast food? Bacon, egg and cheese on a everything bagel. Ugh, classic. Ideally from like a bodega slash corner store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my last question for you is, what is the dish that folks might not know they should be making for Rosh Hashanah? So it's not actually a dish, it's an ingredient. But I think it's super important that one of the things that, and this is this goes to even the biblical times, because when, when the Torah was written, every time it's talking about the land of milk and honey, they're not talking about the honey that we're dipping our apples in. They're talking about Ceylon, they're talking about date syrup, date honey. So it's something that truly you can use one for one, substitute in all of your recipes on your table for the apples, all of it. I would say throw Ceylon, date syrup, date honey, it's going to be called all of those things into your pantry and use it. You can use it for your challah instead of honey, one for one, all of that. You can get it at every Whole Foods. It's not difficult to find anymore. It's actually something that is incredibly prominent now and it is vegan and it is super complex in flavor. I just think that that's one way that you can take a small act towards globalizing your Jewish kitchen. Love that. Love that. Jake, this has been such an awesome conversation and I am so appreciative for the time that you've spent with us. Thank you so much and wishing you a Shana Tova. 
Shanatova, such a pleasure to chat. Now it's time for our closing segment, which this week we'll call our Rosh Hashanah Table Talk. And with me at the table is my guest host, Dana Steiner, and another special guest, fellow podcast host, Dan Pashman, host of The Sporkful, a podcast about food from all kinds of angles, science, history, race, religion. He's also my brother-in-law. Dan, welcome. Hey, Manya. Long time no see. <laughs> yeah, really, really. Seriously. It's been way too long. Yeah. And meet Dana. Hey, Dana. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh. This is so fun. This is my job. This is this is wild. This Hard is wild. to believe, right? Look, I didn't stumble into a career as a food podcaster, Dana. It was quite intentional. <laughs> mm. You made the right choice. Yeah. You made the right choice. <laughs> well, totally by coincidence, you and Dana both interviewed Jake Cohen this week, and it's almost as if Rosh Hashanah is around the corner and we all have Jewish food on the brain and on the stomach. Did Jake or his cookbook inspire you, Dan, to make anything in particular for Rosh Hashanah this year? I think I'm going to try his crispy chicken thighs with timis. It's like uh, mm. carrots and like sweet ingredients. It's sweet, goes well with Rosh Hashanah. I mean, what I like most about Jake's work and his cookbook is I feel like it really it has expanded my idea of what Jewish food in America is and what it can be, which I find exciting because I'm someone who likes to tinker in the kitchen. I'm like, yes, I love tradition and the traditional foods at the holidays are nice, but I also like I want to try new stuff. And Jake has given me a lot of new ideas and inspiration for that. Do you always make chicken for Rosh Hashanah? Don't you usually make a brisket, Dan? Yeah, that will be brisket. My mother-in-law, Alice, uh, who you know well, is going to be making the brisket this year. Um, and so she's in charge of that. I'm going to do the chicken and then some veggies. Because Rosh Hashanah is early this year and it's still prime tomato season, I'm thinking I might want to do a side that incorporates tomatoes. Mm. That could yeah. be a nice curveball for people. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Dana, you also have Jake's cookbook. Are there particular yes. recipes or tips and tricks that he shared that you've adopted and might apply this Rosh Hashanah? Definitely. So I would say that when I was having my chat with Jake, I asked him what's you know one of the most underrated ingredients that people should be using in their cooking. And he said Ceylon or date syrup. And I see that Jake actually has a date roasted Brussels sprout recipe. So that's definitely a possibility. You know, my folks aren't such adventurous eaters. They're sort of pretty typical when it comes to what they like. They like what they like. But this year, we're going to bring some new and fresh flavors. So hopefully, I'll be invited back next year. That will hopefully, you know, a lot be a riding good thing. on this, Dana. I know. I'm very stressed. I'm very stressed about this. But, you know, hopefully, I'll be invited back. So we'll see. I loved that suggestion from Jake. I actually accidentally discovered date syrup and date molasses because I thought it was a good substitute for pomegranate molasses. Oh, different. It is not a substitute <laughs> at all. But it's really good when you add it to yogurt. And I've, I've experimented a little with the bottle that I now have in my pantry. So I'm, I'm actually looking forward to dipping my apples in it. Nice. It's a great suggestion. Nice. Mixing it up. Mix it yes, up. That's right. That's right. Well, I do love how Jake talked to you both about how he fell in love with food because of the personal relationships, that act of cooking for someone. And I mean, quite frankly, Dan, I did not cook until I met your brother. And without him, I probably still wouldn't cook. What, what about the muffins? Didn't you meet him? Didn't you get the first date by baking muffins? 
Bingo. Yes. I mean, that was the first thing you ever cooked. That's how much he moved me. Uh, (laughs) Believe me, I didn't really bake muffins for all of the new neighbors in our apartment building. (laughs) But I was inspired to bake for him. And I probably still wouldn't cook on a regular basis if it weren't for him. And that would be a shame because it really has truly become one of my favorite pastimes, but only when it's for family or friends. I mean, when I was alone at home a few weeks ago, I ate cottage cheese and takeout, and that's it. <laughs> cottage cheese and takeout. That's not bad. That's my wife, Janie. When I travel for work, it's just bowls of cereal on the couch and the Real Housewives every night. That's the dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. 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 <laughs> Well, I really enjoyed both of your interviews, and I wish both of you a sweet new year and Shabbat Shalom. Same to you. Thanks. Same to you both. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Don't miss last week's episode of People of the Pod with my guest host, Meggie Wishagrad Fredman, director of AJC's Alexander Young Leadership Department. Meggie talked to a university president and Hillel director about the difficult realities and wealth of opportunities that await American Jewish students returning to school this fall. You can find it at AJC.org slash people of the pod. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 